Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut, Northern California edition. Coming to you live from uh, the campus of Stanford University, where I am a guest of the Hoover Institute. Which is a fantastic think tank here in Northern California. Today's my last day here, and then uh, I'll be heading back to, well, heading back east, and then heading to uh, New York City for the show next week. So uh, I wanted to give you a, a sense of where we are going today in our, uh, in our deep diving into all things, well, all things in the news cycle, all things that are just of interest to me and you. We have uh, some experts on firearms, or at least one particular firearms expert and and an expert on firearms law joining later on in the show to talk about, uh, well, what what you should think about if you're going to get a gun for self-defense and also some gun laws that are currently uh, making their way through the courts, or rather review of gun laws that could make their way to the Supreme Court. Also talk about the latest fallout from the infighting within the Democrat Party. What are we seeing here? Is this... The Clinton campaign apparatus uh, trying to reassert itself, or is it there? And, and is it successful in that, or is it a last gasp of the Clintonites, the Clintonistas and Clintonistos, who want to be the power brokers of that party still, despite the fact that there are others? There is the Sanders, Warren, and Obama wing of the Democrat Party, although I think there's a lot of crossover between Hillary people in terms of the high up politicos and Obama people. There's certainly a power struggle going on. And it's interesting to watch it play out because as I've said to you, and I try not to be childish about it, but I I do like watching Democrats fight. It is amusing. So we will get into some of the latest on that. And then RT, I've been telling you, I don't I haven't heard many other hosts talk about this, but then again I spend most of my time researching for this show, not watching and listening to other shows. Uh, But I haven't heard many people talk about how Russia Today is an open Kremlin propaganda channel on cable TV in this country and on the Internet with a a, does a vast number of views on the Web that is propaganda. Well, it turns out that there is an American based news outlet that has been borrowing heavily from RT one guess as to what it is. Uh, we'll have to get there later on in the show. Bring it, you globalist. So we will get there. Uh, we will get there in a bit. That will be an interesting discussion, I think. Uh, and then also some more on North Korea. I want to talk to you about the possibility of a... a th- uh, to call it a thaw might be too strong, but just the beginnings of a... You know, the, the, the first few uh, strokes of the ice pick into the iceberg. I mean, it's it would be a very, very early stage, but 
the beginnings of something different in our relationship with North Korea. It hasn't happened yet. Will it happen? Is it possible? There are some in the administration who uh, are certainly trying to open the doorway to that. Oh, Republicans on taxes. Here's a big shock. They look, look like they're going to disappoint us all once again. Uh, it's not. I've been telling you, and I'm sorry that my, my cynicism, I have to share it with you because it proves correct so frequently, but my cynicism about the Republican Congress seems once again to have been well-placed. Uh, they maybe will get something done on this in the new year, but there's all, there's all kinds of problems. I have to borrow from Lumberg, you know. What would you say? Oh, no, that's not Lumberg. <sighs> Gosh. I have to have you come in on Sunday. Yeah. No, it's actually the efficiency experts, the two Bobs. What would you say you do here, Republican Congress? They have these staffs and they are paid salaries to come up with legislation and to, when in the majority, pass legislation that will better the lives of the American people. And what we get is a lot of them appearing on cable TV. They, they, they like their faces on the television screens, these Republicans in the Congress, but they don't like to get stuff done. And they all can always blame somebody else. If we allow the Republican Congress not to have some degree of uh, collective criticism, right? If we can't say that they are failing, if they can say, well, it's not me, it's... It's this group of five Republicans in moderate states. Or, well, then what is the point? There will, there will never be any accountability, right? They have to figure out how to make it work. They said they would. They made promises. They made verbal promises, which in some states, like in my home state of New York, are in fact legally binding, right? So they promised us that they would do things, and now it's time for them to do them. And I think so far uh, we have not seen much to make us think that they're going to pull that off. So, uh, a pack show. Oh, and, and maybe at the end we'll just do some the resistance screaming at the sky because some of these <laughs> some of these videos are incredible. That there are adults there there are adults out there who gather in large numbers to videotape themselves screaming at the sky because of Trump. Maybe the most hashtag resistance thing I've ever seen, heard, or even thought of. It's it's pretty incredible. Um, but before we get to all of that, I want to turn our attention to the, the biggest news stories of the day. I come in here into the Freedom Hut, whether it's in New York, California, or any other places where I uh, pop up. I come in and I want to talk to you about what matters. I am so thankful for your time and, and your support of the show that I feel an obligation to all of you to focus on issues that are important to you, important to me, and also to bring information and as much knowledge and background knowledge as I can to the show so that you're, you're always getting something out of spending time with me here in the hut. But sometimes there are uh, stories out there that become so big that we're not talking about policy and we're not talking about political philosophy or things that affect your day-to-day -day life or mine. We have to talk about what the media is deciding we will talk about because it has implications that affect those other things. It has implications that affect politics and the direction of this country and and what's uh, what our future will be so that's just a my my way of transitioning us right now into this this plethora of sexual assault allegation stories that are out there today and there's there are numerous ones i know that the biggest one is obviously about the uh, about roy moore i'm well aware 
Uh, and and that this is possibly going to well, I mean, it's definitely going to affect a race. We're not sure. Uh, Roy Moore is a we're not sure to, to what extent just yet, but he is a Republican nominee in Alabama for a U.S. Senate seat. And they've come out with a piece on him. But before I get into the specifics of that, that story, that series of allegations, I just uh, wanted to say that there are there are others as well. Um, I, I didn't even think that this was well, I guess it's technologically possible. I've never heard of this before. Kevin Spacey is being after the fact removed from a Ridley Scott movie. Because of the allegations against him. And I should note, one of the reasons that I, I feel I'm, I'm cautious about talking about this subject matter on air is just because there are so many allegations against so many people that I'm, as I'm trying to gauge the severity and the veracity, right, how, how, much, how big a deal are the specific allegations against any one person? Because they vary tremendously, right? You know, people are talking about, oh, sexual assault, the Kevin Spacey stuff, the, those are really serious allegations, Right. The George H.W. Bush in a wheelchair with, uh, with early onset dementia, those are not sexual assault allegations. Those are people who are looking to get attention for themselves and, and you know, act very poorly. Um, so there's a whole, a whole gamut out there, right? There's the whole spectrum uh, from the worst kind of stuff. I mean, the, the Weinstein, so the, the movie that someone's going to make about Harvey Weinstein is actually going to be the best movie involving anything Weinstein probably ever, right? I mean, the, the movie about Harvey Weinstein is the real movie. You know, hiring private security firms, ties to Israel, prime minister of Israel is putting him in touch with a security firm. He's trying to run. I mean, he was like running a private espionage operation against women that he had sexually assaulted. It's incredible when you end. For those of you who are like, Buck, I don't care, it's Hollywood, you know, this isn't as important as other, you know, we need to focus on, you know, the stories that that matter. This isn't something that's high on my list of, he was a, he wasn't just a a disgusting creep. He was incredibly powerful in the Democrat Party. He was incredibly powerful with the Clintons and the Obamas. And I keep repeating it because the media doesn't want to. They've, They've already, I mean, he's been fed to the lions and rightfully so, you know, Weinstein, but they are not making the, you know, they're going to push as much as possible on how grotesque Weinstein is and leave out the part about how the Obamas, the Clintons were basically, you know, bowing to this guy and, and asking him for money all the time. Right. That's going to be left. That's going to be left out of the story um, unless we keep it as part of the story. But they removed uh, they removed Kevin Spacey from this Ridley Scott movie and. They are, I'm trying, who else? Oh, and and Louis C.K., whom some of you may be a big fan of his work. I don't know. People have tried to convince me that he's really funny. I've always found him deeply unfunny. So I I don't know. Uh, Incredibly crass humor, but I'm not here to be a humor judge. I'm here to look at this story. And he's also had a major uh, cancellation. Uh, I think his HBO series has been, has been canceled, but he's accused of doing grotesque stuff. Now, before I get to, again, the, the more story I know, that it directly involves a Senate race. And so there, there's, a tr- there's tremendous political implications there. How is it that so many, on the, on the media side in particular, so many of these individuals were able to get it, assuming it's all true? And I have been a, a loud voice. And look, it's, you put yourself out there on this, right? I will tell you, it is one of my professional regrets uh, that that still lingers with me. It's not a big thing, but that when I read about the uh, the UVA 
alleged gang rape at a fraternity. And when I actually read the piece, I remember, and I was in front of some family members, I remember thinking to myself, and I said, if I recall correctly, I said out loud, I just, that just doesn't, that just doesn't wash. There's something, just, no, I'm sorry. You know, a woman runs out in a fraternity party. Uh, if you read the story, you'll see what I mean. You know, bleeding all over, covered in glass, you know, at a crowded party, at a, co- I mean, that's something out of a horror movie. And no one said anything. No one called the police. No, and and I didn't say anything because you know you you don't want to you don't want to not believe the victim, right? It's such a horrible case. But it just I read the story and I didn't. It just didn't make sense to me that that would be the way that this could have happened. There are other stories I read where I'm like, yeah, that's a sexual assault on campus. That's that that certainly lines up with what one could reasonably be expected to believe. Um, or in some cases, you're like, well, that that clearly you know that clearly seems like it happened. But I didn't say anything, and it was in part because there is such a backlash. On this issue, you get into dangerous water just by asking the basic questions that you would for any other, particularly on the criminal side, criminal inquiry. You know, what evidence is there of this? Do we have any proof of these allegations? You know, what? just asking questions when you get to a level, a level of heinousness, particularly a level of heinousness with sexual crimes – puts you in something of a, shall we say, a a, a dangerous territory. And I've already seen this on social media today where people have been, anyone who says, hold on a second, uh, you know, Roy Roy Moore, um, and even if they caveat it with if he, you know, had, if he had sexual contact with an underage girl, that's disgusting, grotesque and, uh, and disqualifying, comma, but what what do we do about this is a, a criminal issue and there's a presumption of innocence and it, it, that discussion is not allowed to be had. I see people in the media saying that's you know that that person who says that is supporting you know is 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 excusing a a pedophile. Well, who who wants to be in that position, right? And I have been trying to say for some time that in this current moment right now you can you could see this coming. And those of you listening to the show know I've been warning about. I'm not saying that the Roy Moore case is or is not this situation, because I don't know. Uh, But I have been warning about a reality where there will be political targets, because right now the environment is such that the mere allegation is destruction. The allegation of sexual harassment, never mind the allegation of actual sexual criminal misconduct, is game over. It's done. The person is finished. Finished. That's a lot of power that the media is, because remember, the media is running with all these, the media is taking these stories, they're picking these stories. That's a lot of power the media has right now. And we know that we, this is a media that you have to be very careful with. Do I think that most of the allegations that I have read about are both deeply disturbing and true? Do I think that there are powerful men who are abusing and taking advantage of, and in, in, in many cases, sexually assaulting and violating the criminal or violating the, the basic uh, rights of women, uh, yes, but I have to look at each case individually, and you know we have to do that, right? I mean, the, the presumption of innocence is a legal term, but isn't it also something we should at least keep in in mind? Or does that is that now completely out the window? Uh, we'll talk more about this. I mean, there's the Louis C.K. that actor uh, Ed Westwick. There's another allegation out about him that I've seen. Uh, many of you probably don't know who he is. He's in a show called Gossip Girl. It's just coming, these stories are coming from all over the place. But Roy Moore, 
the Democrats think that they have taken him out of the Senate race. And depending on how this goes, they may have. And that, that might actually be the right thing. I mean, you know, we, we, we don't know yet. We don't know. We'll get into this in a few minutes. Stay with me. Well, I see here, uh, what is the Senator John McCain has put out a statement already on the uh, Roy Moore situation. The allegations against Roy Moore are deeply disturbing, and he should uh, drop out of the race right away so that Alabama... Sorry, are deeply disturbing and disqualifying. Here we go. He should immediately step aside and allow the people of Alabama to elect a candidate they can be proud of. That's what John McCain said. Oh, look, what do you think about all this? I think we've got a, a lot of listeners, actually, in, uh, in Alabama. You may be paying close attention to this race. This is, the, this is the biggest news story in the country right now, everybody. It's the number one thing on the Washington Post homepage, obviously. They broke the story. Number one on CNN, number one on Fox. So as I was saying to you, this is, this is now the big story in the country. And... My understanding, and uh, it, I could be mistaken here, my understanding is that uh, Roy Moore denies all of this, or, or at least denies anything, denies doing anything that was criminal at any point in time. You know, whether you believe him or not, that is up to your judgment and discretion. Uh, but that is my understanding of where this stands right now. And so here we have a situation where. I, I, and just as an aside, by the way, the the media's coverage of this a a possible senator with a uh, a, a sex scandal from thirty or forty year, forty years ago, I believe, um, which I'm not saying in any way mitigates it or makes it okay, but the, the media clearly put a lot of resources, attention, and focus into this story versus Menendez, which, if you recall, there were actually allegations. Yes, you can look it up. There were allegations, I believe, on the Daily Caller about Menendez. Uh, Senator Menendez some years ago um, that maybe for some of you, if you have not read them, you'll see we'll see the Daily Caller put them out there. I don't believe they ever retracted them, although they may have. Um, But the Menendez story, as it stands right now, is that he faces federal criminal charges in, in a corruption case and they just don't care. There's just not much media interest in that story at all. But I'm not. I don't want to play a diversion game or whataboutism here because this is very serious stuff we're talking about with the possibility of, uh, or the allegation, not the possibility, the allegation of underage sexual contact, uh, contact for someone who wants to be a, the next U.S. senator from Alabama. Uh, my understanding is also that the only possible criminal now there's no criminal charges that can be uh, leveled here because of the statute of limitations. My understanding is that the only possible criminal violation here would have been with one young woman who was 14 at the time, and that the others would have been uh, would have been legal contact if there was contact, which I'm not sure if Roy Moore has said that that has happened with those other individuals or not, but he definitely, from his statement, denies the con- so. You know, I'm sitting here just trying to go through the facts, and what's amazing is that you can see this right now. In the current political environment, even to ask about the facts, even to ask about the allegations, is to open yourself up to all kinds of charges of, you know, not taking this seriously enough or somehow being morally complicit in ill behavior. It's... It's 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 getting intense out there, my friends. We'll switch topics up in a few. Before we go into the break there, team, if you've got any thoughts on this Roy Moore story, um, if, you, if you feel strongly one way or the other, or just you're, you're withholding judgment until more facts come out, I'm, I'm curious. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. 
Uh, so clearly they, they have four sources on the record who've gone on the record and they are using the because you know, I believe in three of the cases, even if true, three of the individuals, there wouldn't have been any criminal misconduct, but it would have been unseemly. People people would find it uh, uh, socially unacceptable and, you know, a, a problem even if uh, we're talking about, I think one of the young women, well, one of the young women was 18 and he was in his 30s. So that's that's not a legal issue, but that's a, he date, was dating considerably younger women. Um, but the 14-year-old, the because that's a criminal issue and because of the predilection that they're trying to show with the other three cases, they're trying to establish, uh, they're trying to establish that this is the way that Judge Moore was, uh, well, he was just Roy Moore at the time, I believe, was operating and We'll see what this does to this race. I'm sorry, Tyrone. He was a prosecutor. Thank you. Yeah, I knew in the in the uh, he was outside the courthouse in one of the stories. They they, um, you know, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, the way that now th- this is this has become a tidal wave. Um, they're coming after people all over the place, and many of them certainly more than deserve it. But as I have been saying to you, power is just. One of the one of the lessons of this whole period, the post Weinstein era that we are in, is that power is an invitation. Uh, well, power is 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 going to be abused by people who have it. Right, uh, power is going to be abused, and this is our whole system of government is premised on this fact. There is a reason why we have all these checks and balances, and there's some very interesting. Analyses you could read if you chose to about how gridlock, while various presidents may or may not have said, most recently Obama, that, you know, gridlock is terrible, and Trump doesn't like obstruction. You know, when you're when you're at the levers of power, you think you've got all the right ideas and you want to implement them. But slowing things down sometimes is a good thing. limits limits the damage that bad ideas can do uh, from a government perspective because it limits the power that government has, right? We have a, we have a government of limited and defined powers, or at least we're supposed to these days feels less and less like that is the case, but the power right now has, uh, has shifted. And those who are caught up in this maelstrom, those who find themselves in the crosshairs of sexual allegations. And I, as I have been saying, that run run through a whole spectrum from unwanted comments at the you know holiday party or something a few years ago at the company to straight on sexual predators who should be spending decades in in penitentiaries right we've seen we've seen both of those things and a, a lot of the and a lot of things that are in the middle a lot of you know inappropriate but not criminal conduct you know uh, professionally sanctionable but not Police need to show up and arrest this you know, maniac right away conduct. I, I just am continuously sounding the, uh, the alarm bell here because I assure you, I assure you, and you know, whether this is already, whether this is something that's, they've already planned who it's going to be, they will, because uh, this is still, the, the media is still left dominated, they will use this, they will abuse this current moment of, of power and of momentum against the abusers, in a sense, uh, they will use this to go after somebody. And by the time we find out that the person was innocent and didn't do anything, it will be too late and they will have been destroyed. And the Democrats will not, they will not 
feel the least bit bad about it, right? This is the this is like Harry Reid on the Senate floor saying Mitt Romney hasn't paid taxes in you know a decade. Total lie, but it was effective. And at some point in the future, there will come a time based on everything I'm saying. I'm just making a prediction here. There will come a time when there will be someone who's very uh, important to conservatism or to the right. There's somebody who is standing in the way of the leftist progressive agenda. And the, the allegations don't have to be all that. I'm not saying that it'll be uh, very serious allegations. I'm not saying somebody be falsely accused of, of rape, for example, although that, that could happen. That, that has happened to people. I, I, I'm, it's, you, could, you notice that even raising that now, that we have, we have very prominent cases in this country of, uh, of false rape accusations. That has happened. Now, we have many, many, many other cases of rape, but we, we the, you know, that, that don't get reported. And I, and I understand this. But right now, the pendulum has swung in the direction of if someone even is if there are even hints, if there is even whispers of sexual misconduct, person's career, livelihood, it's over. They're done. That's a dangerous place. That's a dangerous place for us to be as a country because there's no. There's no fixing it really after the fact for the people that get caught up in it, uh, if in fact they're caught up in it um, unjustly. For those who are getting their comeuppance, for those who are finally getting their just desserts, you know, justice. Justice is, for wrongdoers, a a painful thing, as it should be. And I I mean, clearly, Weinstein, I mean, we, we could run down the list of of those who are obviously guilty of misconduct. It's just a question of the extent and whether or not there is the possibility of criminal charges against them. But I think you you all see the same thing that I do, which is that this is now, it, it is out there as a political weapon that could crush anybody. Nobody right now with certain allegations uh put out there in, in the public sphere would really be able to to weather them with I mean you know, maybe Trump uh, maybe Trump himself but anyone else uh, alleg- and, and, there, and I should note there have been allegations against Trump to this effect right people have been saying you know the dossier remember the dossier remember what was in the dossier so and I don't believe the dossier and the dossier has been discredited so I'm not, it's not a crazy idea. It's not a crazy thought that people will get, because we've already seen before, pre-Weinstein, they tried to eliminate Trump as a political threat. They tried to stop his presidency from happening using allegations of sexual misconduct as as really the primary, you know, the whole uh, Access Hollywood tape and all of that was the main, that was the main effort. So you, you have to just keep that in mind. You know, this is why there's not a, and an assumption of innocence for everybody, but there should be a legal presumption of innocence. And there also should be some degree of let's wait for the facts. Let's wait for all the facts to come out here. And it's it, but it's going to get so nasty. And what they do and the way to make the way to make this uh, particularly potent, this notion of the allegation is, is destruction. Right. Allegations of sexual misconduct right now are destruction. The way to do it is that anyone who never mind is I mean, I know, I'm not defending anybody. Right. I'm not defending. I'm just trying to analyze and work through these allegations as they have been presented, both the, the, the ones today and, and some of the other ones, too. But 
the heat has been turned up so high on this issue that even to go through this with basic fair-mindedness, okay, what do we know, what is alleged, what is provable, is this criminal misconduct we're talking about, or is this just sleazy, gross, unbecoming misconduct? That's a very important distinction. Just going through that process, you begin to be suspect, maybe. Now now you'll get some writer at Vox or the HuffPost or somewhere that will say, you know, so-and-so is coming to the defense of, of alleged pedophile or so-and-so is coming to the defense of alleged rapist. And um, okay, so is the next stop on this that if someone, if someone gets a lawyer, uh, that, the, that the lawyer is, is, a, is some way morally complicit with the sexual misdeeds of the client? I mean, you can see how this goes. It is a it is a unique moment in time here on this, and I just warn you that there will there will be, in my mind, there will be a, a major abuse of this. And we can say to ourselves right now, okay, you know, Buck, when that happens, we'll know, and you know, we'll we'll judge it on the merits as we would anything else. But I'm telling you right now, especially if it's in the private sector world, if it's somebody who's a a, 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 a prominent figure. In any industry or any job out there, you know, politicians, a little bit of a different category, uh, the company's just not going to want to deal with it. They're, they won't want to deal with the heat, and that will be the end. And when everyone turns around and says, hold on a second, that wasn't, it'll be, it'll be too late. So I, I, I warn you, it is, it is a tough moment in time for, uh, for the innocent until proven guilty chorus of the legal profession, I am sure, because that is a, as a general principle is disappearing very, very rapidly. And I understand why, because heinous sexual crimes are the lowest of the low. But, you know, we, we do need to keep in mind some sense of analysis and process here. It can't just be, you know, sentence first, trial later. Um, that, and we're getting close to that with some of this stuff. We really are. All right. 844-900-2825. You think I'm off on this or you've got some of your own thoughts or anything else? Please do. Let me know. I want to get to a discussion of uh, maybe some of the DNC rigged and rigged stuff. That'll be fun. We'll talk about that. And RT, progressive snowflakes screaming at the sky. Got a packed show. I'll be right back. All right, we've got a lot of lines lit, as I knew we would. I think we got all of our lines lit. Let's get to them. Kathy in Florida. What's up, Kathy? Hi, Buck. I just really love your show, first of all, and I wanted to say that I agree with you insofar as I think that um, this could very quickly become a weapon if it hasn't already, um, these allegations, which is really unfortunate because there are real victims out there, but I'm afraid it's going to be hard and the lines are going to get murdered because I'm afraid there will be a lot of um, untruth just to get at someone. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's it's almost, I'm, I'm saying it's a prediction. I feel like it's almost inevitable that there will be uh, abuse of allegations for most likely political purposes, but it also could just be personal, it could be personal vendettas. Uh, and, and, you know, in this instance right now, I just think it's very interesting that you have you have allegations out today about a number of individuals, and they have, I believe, uh, I'm trying to think, let me see, um, Tyrone, did Louis C.K. has he has he denied it all, or the the comedian? Do we know? He's yet to comment. 
He has yet to come. Okay, well, he's yet to come. You know, this is. I feel like there are some things you can do to read into this a little bit. Like, if someone accuses you of something like Louis C.K. has been accused of, and you are 100% innocent and you know it, I feel like you get that statement out right away. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not just crafting his statement carefully, but I, I think you move pretty quickly on that one, Kathy. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate it. Uh, Robert in Mississippi. Welcome to the Bucks Action Show. What's up? It's good to talk to you again. And you're right. Allegations are allegations. And if he is, uh, and I'm going to use the word pervert, you know, there's no, he won't stop. He will have kept doing it. So why are we only looking at allegations from 30 years ago? Um, and unless they come up with something more uh, definitive, harder, hard evidence, Alabama will elect them. I mean, let's be honest, Mississippi reelected the self-confessed our senator who had amorous relations with goats when he was a kid. So, oh. I, I, I was oh. not familiar with that. Um, but oh, yeah. all right, Senator Cochran admitted it. So, I've and never heard of that. But all right, Robert, I got. I'm gonna let. I'm gonna let it. Whoa, Tyrone, what just happened? I don't know. Tyrone, I have. I, I've never heard of this before. I'm going to look it up just because I don't want to call him a liar, but I've never heard that either. I've never heard that either, and I'm, like, afraid to try to, you know, do the research on my computer. Um, so, okay. Uh, anyway, the, okay. I, I, <laughs> wow. Let's get to Al in uh, West Virginia. Hey, Al, how you doing? I'm fine, sir. I'm a Union American pipeliner, former Vietnam vet. Well, thank you for your and- service, sir. Well, thank you. But we all support Trump, even though we're union. We love his, what he's got going on. But that rough guy dropped out because of allegations, and now with this man in Alabama, it's all BS. I don't believe it. Huh. We, who, who is the first guy that you said that dropped out? Russ. Uh, he was... I heard him on... When Sean Hannessy earlier today, he was talking about him. Huh? Okay, I don't know. The, I don't know who we're referring to. But anyway, so but so you, you think that this is, you you don't believe? Uh, rather, you believe Roy Moore categorically denies any sexual contact with a girl who was fourteen at the time. That's what that I saw the statement today. That's what he's saying, and you at this point are taking Roy Moore at his word. Is that what you're telling me? All of us are. We talk around the job site all the time. And we believe this is another thing from the left. Hmm. All right. Well, look, Al, thank and you. For, uh, we're thank all you. union where I work, but we all, union is supposed to be Democrat. We love Trump. We love Yeah, well, that's, it's because of guys like you, it's because of guys like you that, uh, that, that, you know, Trump won and Hillary didn't. <laughs> so, that's you know, union guys, a lot of guys in the Rust Belt. We voted him in, and we support him, and we ain't backing down. I don't care what the media says, the drive-by says. He is awesome, and we love him. <laughs> okay. All right, man. Thank you very much for calling in, uh, Al. I, I appreciate it, and thank you for your service. Um, yeah, we, we'll see. We'll see. I, has the, uh, Tyrone, has the White House said anything about this today yet? I have not seen anything. Um, from no, the White House no, on the Roy Moore. Uh, nothing Roy official, Moore. no. I mean, I see here uh, 
Tapper over at CNN saying, reaction to Washington Post story on Roy Moore. Majority Leader, Mc- Leader McConnell, if these allegations are true, he must step aside. Senator Shelby, if that's true, he doesn't belong in the Senate. Senator Gardner, deeply troubling. Okay. But w- w- so what are we supposed to do about this, right? Like, if they're, they're not, unless Roy Moore is going to say that, yes, it's true, they're never going to prove that it's true. So really, the expectation here is that, let's just be honest, the expectation here is that the allegation is enough to disqualify him and stop him from becoming a senator. That, that's what, because that, they're never, people are saying, oh, you know, if proven, well, if proven true, uh, or if the allegation is true, he must step aside. Well, he's saying they're not true. So where does that leave this situation? Um, I, I just, I don't, I don't have an answer here other than I, I think he's probably going to stay in the race. I don't think he's. I don't think he's going to step aside because as, as far as he's concerned at this point, I mean, the, you know, the damage is already done to his reputation. So why? And if he's if he really is being honest and, and he's saying that this is a false accusation, remember, there's there's only one only one criminal accusation. And then the others are all accusations of, uh you know, unseemly dating habits, I guess. I mean, that's my understanding. There's no other. There's only one criminal uh, criminal allegation of, of all the allegations that have been made. So um, we'll see. We'll see what happens here. I, I think Roy Moore probably stays in. And I mean, he might. I mean, maybe he still wins. I, I don't know. Because he's just going to if he keeps saying he denies it, they, they're not going to be able to prove that he's lying. This is not. It's 40 years ago. So. Alabamans are going to be the the judge on this one. Literally, they're the only ones who are going to be the judge on this one uh, in terms of, you know, passing a specific judgment because I don't think it's going to, it's not going to court. All right, we'll have more. Stay with me. All right, team. So I I occasionally get a little caught off guard by a caller. Um, We just had a caller before who, uh, let's let's be honest, called me off guard. I was like, what? Uh, we, We have Tyrone here doing a little research in the break, helping me out. And it turns out that well here here's the here's the truth of well here's the report at least on on what our caller was referring to Mississippi Senator uh, Thad Cochran was addressing a crowd at a campaign event a few years ago and he said about visiting family in the area quote it was fun it was an adventure to be out there in the country and seeing what goes on picking up pecans from that to all kinds of indecent things with animals End quote. I mean, okay. look, they asked him afterwards and he said he didn't remember saying it and he was trying to be he was trying to be funny. I I, I think he probably meant, you know, chasing chickens around the yard, you know, which I remember my uh, my my dad had a a friend in the uh, Charlottesville area. And I uh, remember being going there as a kid and I used to love to uh, try to chase the little, you know, I was like eight. Right. I would try to chase the chicken with the little uh, chicks all over the yard, and then they told me that I had to stop because I think it's like bad for the bad for the chickens to have a, a crazy, a maniacal eight-year-old trying to chase the chicks and grab them and go, you know, I just want to grab the little yellow chicks. Um, but anyway, so I mean, but like maybe that's what he was trying to say—that he was chasing chickens around the yard. You know, Rocky chased chickens for training, and I don't think he meant indecent things with animals, but he did say that. So to our caller. You were not, you know, I thought the caller was maybe just having a, kind of having a go at me, but he was not. He was completely, he was talking about what was said, and now Senator Cochran thought it was, said it was a joke. So, okay, there we go. I, I think we've, I think we've said that, but I, I was definitely, 
Well, you know, it's live radio. You, you hear things. Speaking of live radio, uh, okay. I've been trying to tell you for a while about how RT is out there and they are an open propaganda wing of the Kremlin. And so all of this recent, oh my gosh, like the Russian influence in the election, oh my gosh, all of that is a little bit hard for me to take at face value because the Russians have been, not just through the KGB and the... Provokatsiya, uh, provocation. It's fun to say the Russian thing. I don't speak Russian, but it's fun to say them, right? And uh, disinformatsiya. Um, the, the Russian speakers in the audience, whenever I put the emphasis on the wrong part of the word, they always let me know. So I try to remember. I think it's disinformatsiya. Um, and the Russians have been doing that for a long time. RT, Russia Today, you can check it out if you want. It's on... Uh, you know, it's on the on the YouTube. It's on YouTube. It's on the online. And I think it's still carried by cable in some places. Although I think it's dropped off a lot of places. But I didn't even know that. They had to register back in September as a foreign agent. You're hearing a lot about, you know, FARA, Foreign, Regi- foreign Agent Registration Act. Uh, the uh, far, I mean, the RT, Russia Today, had to register under FARA, according to the Hill here. So, and that's that's unusual. Usually... Media outlets don't have to, right? Foreign media outlets can operate, but but it's so it's Kremlin paid for. It is it is a they use some cutout I think now to do the payments, but it's sponsored by taking direction from the Kremlin. And if you want to get a sense of how clear it is that the Kremlin is running the show with that, uh, literally running the show, uh, just look at their coverage of Assad. I mean, Assad is like the great statesman of the Middle East on RT, and it's like uh, this is guy's gassing his own people and is a bloodthirsty uh, maniac, but. Anyway, that's one way. There's a lot of other ways, too. And as I've told you, most of RT propaganda would fall under the, the general description of left-wing, progressive criticisms of the United States. RT's criticisms of our foreign policy sound like Noam Chomsky, sound like you know, Bernie Sanders, sound like people like that. But I think it's also interesting that there, are, there is another... Uh, outlet for RT's propaganda in uh, in recent years, and I'll get into that in a second. But you know, some of you may not know that I have uh, that there are, there are some hosts, radio hosts in this business, who just hold me in in incredibly uh, high regard. Uh, you know, there's w- one or two in particular that they really just can't get enough. They really just can't get enough Buck Sexton. And here's here's one um, who's just expressing those sentiments. Play seventeen. You know, Buck Sexton, when he's on there bad-mouthing me, we're going to break and come back, doesn't tell you that he was an intelligence officer with a central intelligence agency or that he works for Glenn Beck in that government operation. <laughs> you see? Now, notice, yeah, C- no CNN's one actually half fair in that. The report previously the day before, they edited it to make Stone sound like he was calling for violence. But I, I, I love how Buck Sexton controls but- reality, and he says, I'm not conservative. No, I'm a I said he was a conspiracy theorist. I didn't say constitutionalist Americana. Americana. Of America, I am a defender of humanity, like any other man should be. Plus, my name means that. So, I'm here to tell you, Book Sexton. Book. Sounds like a comic book name. Comic book uh, name. I mean, I know you got the Bob's big boy hair and everything, but give me a break, son. Yo, come on, come on. Why has he got to go after the hair? Why? Why you got to go after the hair? You know, I was born. I was born this way. Okay. The swoop has always been there. I could show you photos when I was a kid. Bob's big boy hair. Buck, 
Buck Sexton. Um, so, so he has a that that individual, remain unnamed, has another has another show uh, that he does, and it turns out this just reported today that that Infowars site and and host associated with it, according to BuzzFeed, I'm just putting out this is with BuzzFeed says that they have uh, that that Infowars has copied over a thousand articles from RT and put it directly on its website. Over a thousand. That's uh that's a lot. That's a lot of non-attribution of content which in my business actually gets people who are trying to protect their reputations upset, but um you know, this this is when you're a defender of freedom, when you're a defender of of, of, of manhood, you know that then you don't have to worry about these things. I suppose play, play clip eighteen just for fun. I'm a pioneer. I'm an explorer. I'm a human, and I'm coming. I'm animated. I'm alive. <laughs> My heart's big. It's got hot blood going through it fast. Oh man, I love this. I guy. like to fight too. I like to fight. I like to eat. I like to I like eat. Children. Children. I'm here. Here. I got a life force. This is a human. <laughs> this is what we look like. This is what we act like. Roar. Oh, man. He's, he's, he's amazing. That guy's amazing. It's amazing. Um, but his, his site is, is, a, is full of RT articles, which are, in fact, uh, which, which are taken directly from what is the Kremlin playbook because the Kremlin's funding it. So here's my point about all this. Russian influence in our media... All kinds of foreign influence in our media. Not new. There are other countries that I would like to tell you about that have a tremendous amount of influence in media. In fact, some of them have so much influence in media that you run professional risks by criticizing them. There may be one or two countries in the Middle East with uh, a considerable amount of oil wealth that have quite a bit of say over the news that you are watching, my friends. Quite a bit of say over what goes on different networks, over what's taught in different universities, especially in their Middle East programs. Oh, there's a lot of outside influence in there. You know, if we're really going to talk about this and be serious about it and have a discussion about how it affects our perception of the world all around us, let's really get into it then, right? And that RT is was able to get into the uh, ecosystem of the... Well, I mean, I, I, look, I, I said that they were doing conspiracy stuff at InfoWars, and, and they do, um, but that it was read by so many people, and it seems like it's coming from a domestic American source, that makes it much more, that makes it much more potent. But, as I have been saying to you, RT has been around since 2000, I think. This is not new. They're just seizing upon this now. And acting like it's a huge deal. They're, this is all part of the Russia collusion narrative, right? They decide that, oh my gosh, Russia was trying to influence our election. Meanwhile, right in front of their faces, they've got hundreds of millions of views of a Russian Kremlin propaganda channel and U.S.-based sites and, quote, news sources running with RT stuff for years, for years and years. So I wonder also, how are we supposed to police information from abroad? It's on the individuals, it's on the integrity of different sites and different journalists and analysts and authors to sift through what's true from what's not. Their integrity is on the line. It's not up to the government to decide that we, well, we're not going to get information from abroad. You know, we're, we're not allowed to hear from foreign sources about, you know, what, what's next? We're not going to ban the BB, BBC International 
And today, in the latest talks in Doha, there's a discussion of... I mean, it's like, whew, makes NPR seem like the WWE. I mean, you know, BBC America stuff is... The news stuff, at least, is... Or BBC International is pretty boring. But, yeah, there you have it. Um... I'm human. I'm a man. It's it's you can't make this stuff up, man. It's great, and I you know I don't always gotta make fun of the hair. You know, it have to. You know, you want, you want to say I don't tell people I'm CIA, even though it's on my Wikipedia page and on my Twitter page and on my Facebook, and and it's been an open ever since I left the agency. Fine, fine. If you want to say that, fine. You know, I mean, there's like some level of I, I I can accept the heat in this business. Why you gotta Why you gotta go after the hair, bro? Why Why is it gotta be all personal like that? You know what I mean? I just, I just don't, under, just don't understand. I mean, could it be a bit of hair envy? I'm just putting that. It's just possible. How dare you, globalist! All right, um, let's move to Hillary and the latest fighting within the DNC. That after the break. Speaking of Russia collusion and the investigation and and all of that, uh, there are continuing. Uh, well, there's a continuing series of of testimonies going on. That is just a long list of people that Mueller and his team and, and others are, uh, and, and the House investigations too, but they're, they're bringing people in to talk about all these Trump things. Uh, here's what NBC News was talking about earlier, reporting on, I should say, earlier today. After a business meeting before the Miss Universe pageant in 2013, a Russian participant offered to send five women to Donald Trump's hotel room in Moscow. His longtime bodyguard told Congress this week, according to three sources who were present for the interview. Two of the sources said the bodyguard, Keith Schiller, viewed the offer as a joke and immediately responded, we don't do that type of stuff. Now, this goes to the dossier. Um, in the dossier, there were allegations that Trump had involvement with prostit- Russian prostitutes before the Miss USA pageant. Or, yeah, Miss USA, right? I get them. Yeah, that's the one. Uh and here you got his bodyguard testifying in, in front of Congress, so it's under oath. He can't he, if he if he lies, it's under threat of perjury. Uh, and there you have it. He's just saying it's not true. I just want to know at, at what point are we allowed to start thinking that maybe we're just going over the same things over and over here because spending time on it is damaging to the administration. At what point are we going to realize that the legal bills that people tied to Trump and people in his administration, the legal bills that they face are gigantic? Now, I'm not a, a Roger Stone. Uh, leg- I, I, I don't have much to say on Roger Stone. I'll just say that. All right. I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, but my understanding is I, I saw a report the guy's facing. $450,000 of legal bills. Now, is that true? I, I, you know, I just read the report today. I mean, who, who knows, right? I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's 45000 and he's overstating it. But I do know that a good legal team in a, criminal, in a case where there's criminal jeopardy is going to be very, very expensive. And this brings me back to one of my key thoughts about this whole Mueller-Russia collusion situation which is that this is not just politicized, but is in fact a political investigation. They're looking for a political crime, not an actual statutory federal crime with regard to Trump and his top advisors, right? I mean, there's no, there's not, there's no collusion statute they're going to be able to bring to bear here. There's nothing that makes me think that will change. But 
uh, I also think that we are seeing more clearly now than ever that the process is the punishment. The reason that the Democrats are so enthusiastic about this uh, whole investigation is that no matter what, it is damaging to Trump, it depletes the resources of people around him, and it leaves a certain anxiety and a stain on the records of the individuals who are even just brought in for it, uh, brought in for the purposes of giving testimony, uh, brought in for the purposes of uh, shedding light on what happened or didn't happen. But this is just not, this is just not something that is going to stop anytime soon because the continuate the propagation of the investigation is a large goal of the investigation meaning make it as long and painful as possible that is look the democrats are just culturally and ideologically the democrat party the left the party of the state they're going to be more aligned with bureaucracy and also using bureaucratic process as a weapon and that's that's a a, certainly a component of this investigation. You know, what well, was like Hope Hicks had to testify in front of Mueller's people recently. You know, Jared Kushner. I mean, all these people are just being brought in and testified, testified. About what? I mean, so far, it's a, it's a joke. And I haven't seen anything else from the Mueller, I'm, I'm sorry, from the Manafort side of things that makes me think that Manafort's not going to be able to mount a pretty vigorous defense. What do they say? I mean, unless he just didn't pay taxes on any of this, which that would be a problem, but they haven't charged him with that. So what, foreign registration? I just told you, Russia Today, the organization, which I assume means everybody who works for it, was just told this past fall, oh, you know what, you got to register for the Foreign Re- you know, foreign Agent Registration Act. We're not locking up all those journalists. You didn't register under FARA. That's not how it works. It's just not how it works. So those, uh, just, uh, I've meant to get into something else here and i'm realizing now the hillary stuff is probably getting left behind on the cutting room floor today what happened but you know it is it is not um not top of mind for me at the moment uh one thing i wanted i wanted to say is that the woman who because i I brought this up on the show the woman who gave the middle finger to trump's motorcade and uh was fired for it turns out she is happy uh about this from what i understand play clip eight It was a a spur-of-the-moment decision. Lots of things were going through my mind about how disappointed I am with this administration. Um, I didn't really have any other way to express my opinion to Mr. Trump, and so the finger was what I had at the time. Tyrone, am I wrong? I I thought she was happy with it later. Am I I imagining that? I thought I read that, but I read so much that sometimes I forget things. I believe it's because once she got fired, she got a lot of job offers from there we go that's what it was i think there we go oh, they, and this is this is the critical point everybody the left when, when you become a political martyr on the left they shower you with book deals and job offers and you know a contributorship at msnbc and all this stuff when you are a political martyr in the right all the conservative business owners and all the conservative people that are out there and you know i'm sorry the market has spoken. Can't get a job for you. I mean, it's we we do not take care of our own on this side of the political aisle. We just don't. It's one thing the Democrats say what you will about the Democrats. They understand how to uh, create an environment where if you go to the mat for the cause, they'll protect you. I mean, that's why do you think Weinstein thought he could get away with the whole NRA thing? 
right? I mean, oh, I'm going to go after the NRA. I mean, I'm a crazy sex predator rapist, but I'm going to go after the NRA. It's because he knows that, you know, if you have the right politics, the left will excuse so much for you. They'll, they'll just make it all go away. On the right, you know, you're on your own. You know, you're, you're on your own. Um, and that's just a, and I'm talking about for private citizens. You know, if you get caught up in the left's uh, outrage machinery, you can't count on conservatives uh, that are out there running businesses and, and with jobs. We're just not as good at it. I'm, it's just true. It's definitely true in the media, by the way. Oh, my gosh. If you're a conservative and, and you find yourself on the wrong side of the news cycle, you know, it's adios. You're out. But if you are a liberal, you know, they'll bring you back. I mean, look at, like, Elliot Spitzer. After the prostitution thing and everything else, that guy resigns in disgrace. They gave him a show at CNN. David Gurd. Sorry. All right, we'll be right back. I didn't know what she was referring to because, as has now come out, that just wasn't the case. So what happened was she lied. All right, I know. We're back to Hillary stuff. I, I just, it's, it's important, okay? It's not just because I like watching Democrats fight. There's important stuff going on here. It's the future of the political opposition, darn it. We need to understand what they're up to. And watching this play out, you're seeing a lot of massive egos collide. That's always fun. Uh, You're seeing Democrats who are only speaking truth, perhaps, if they are speaking truth, because now it is advantageous for them to do so. And you're seeing some of the some of the rifts that I think the, certainly the media was not interested in during the election, during the actual, during the campaigns. Uh, but now they're coming out a bit more. You get, hey, is this, we got Robbie Mook. Hey, Robbie Mook. Robbie Mook and, uh, and Donna Brazil had a little bit of a, of a back and forth here. Play clip three. The idea that the DNC could rig a contest, frankly, is laughable. The allegations she's making there simply isn't true. We don't certainly don't recognize the campaign she describes. We also don't recall some of the events uh, she said that happened. I'm sure her publisher put her under a lot of pressure. I wish she just put her foot down and said, no, I'm not going to do this. Robbie comes from a school that is a, a, a lot different than the school I, I came from. They do algorithms. They do data modeling. And when I would go come back to... And they uh, do the, sexism, too, and, and, from and, your and, book, well, they, which they, is a little weird since Hillary ran a whole campaign on breaking the glass ceiling, and here's the guy running her campaign diminishing you because of your sex. It seems no, ironic, I, I, maybe. You know, it was dismissive. I, I don't, condescending and dismissive, uh, those are the words I characterize in the book. Condescending and dismissive. Not, not good. Not particularly good. Um, and, yeah. I don't know. I don't know who's really telling the truth there. I mean, Brazil's definitely walked it back a little bit, but I think that was just in response to the pressure. I don't know if that. I don't know if it was a calculated thing that she was going to come out and say that it was rigged, and then say, "Oh no, it wasn't rigged." It's gotten. A, look, I'm here talking about it, right? It's gotten a tremendous amount of press for the book. Uh, but then again, Donna Brazil also says some things that I go, "Hmm, that's not right. <laughs> There's a problem here." An example of that is in her ex, in her exchange about uh, or in her excerpt about Jake Tapper on the I read this to you yesterday and how she was saying that she felt betrayed by Tapper and Tapper's like uh, you've just basically outed us all as fake news right that's and, and Tapper was right because that is what happened 
when you have a very prominent political operative who is also a commentator on a network who is cheating to help Hillary, that that makes things harder. Uh, but Brazil's like, well, you know, I didn't. I don't know why Tapper didn't stay, stick with me on that one, which I, I don't know what her thinking is really on that. Um, but she also said the following, which I have to just play for you for, please. I said last year that uh, CNN never provided us with any questions. CNN never uh, gave us anything in advance. What I did say and what I've said in the future, uh, in the past and what I said in this book is that I, as, as an officer of the DNC, and I know WikiLeaks gave everybody, you know, certain questions and certain emails. These were active measures where you got to see the things I gave to Hillary. Right. You never got a chance to see the things I gave to Bernie right. or, or Martin O'Malley. Well, what does that mean? Was she was she feeding them questions too? Uh, it seems kind of unlikely. It seems sort of like, nah, I don't know. Look, there's she mentioned the, the cult around Hillary, but I think that everybody who is in the Democratic Party uh, who was not willing to support Bernie Sanders was pulled was pulled into that cult because th- there are so much more at stake than just who's going to be the president. For the people that are involved in all of this, it is uh, you, you think of it almost like in medieval times you know with one king comes a whole retinue you know a a whole court of people that have prominent positions and are powerful and and wealthy and have influence Uh, and if if a king gets replaced with another king then there's a whole other bunch of people that come in that's the way uh the presidency actually works in practice that there were a lot of folks who were expecting to get very uh, prominent jobs as a result of a Hillary victory, which meant that they were willing to just go along with whatever. You know, pretend that she was, pretend that she was a great candidate. Warm and fuzzy! I mean, pretend that she was somebody who was going to win. And they all assumed she was going to win. Uh, I'll never forget on election night seeing that New York Times percentage calculator thing about who's going to win the election. I think it went from like 97 to 3 97% chance Hillary would win down to like 50-50 down to, you know, Trump was, once Trump won Florida, it was like, whoop, and all of a sudden it was clear that he was, in fact, going to be the one who pulled it out. And he did. Uh, and one more thing in here. None of these politicians ever want to go away, right? They, they never seemed, it seems to me at least, the, the Democrats have this more so than, you know, you, you'll notice this, right? I mean, you got the Bushes, George W. Bush, he's kind of stepped aside. He doesn't really... Doesn't really get too involved in any stuff anymore. Yeah, he kind of did his thing, right? The Clintons, though, just used it as a cash machine, the whole former president thing. You know, the Obamas are creating a, an almost like a, a government, a presidency, you know, not an exile. It's just down the street from the White House. But you know what I mean? It's created kind of a, a secondary presidency. Um, and what I think you see here is that, you know, for a lot of Democrats, there's just no, there's no future that does not involve being important for a lot of these politicians. There's no future that's just, you know, tending to your family and, you know, going fly fishing and hanging out. Look at Cheney. Cheney's like, I'm done. Finished. See you later. You know, occasionally shows up, does a speaking event here or there. But it's not constantly, they're not constantly inflicting themselves upon the public because of their previous positions. And I just think, you know, you got, you got Joe Biden, who says he has regret because he did not step in. Uh, but I think he is regret just because, like, he can't get past it. He just didn't become president. I think Joe Biden, whom in really every in every objective respect that I can see as an outside observer, is 
an intense mediocrity. I, look, I call it like I see it. Uh, I think Joe Biden thinks that it's kind of unfair that he did not become the president. Play five. I have a regret that I am not president because I think there's so much opportunity. Oh. I think America is so incredibly well positioned. So, yeah, we would be well, we would be better off, he would have us think, if we had Biden running the show. I can't even begin to think of what would a Biden presidency even have. I think it would just be a Hillary presidency with Biden instead of Hillary, actually. Now that I think about it, it wouldn't. So whatever you think would have, it would have been like with, with Biden, it would have been. Or with Hillary, it would be that way with Biden. But the, the uh, outcome of this intra-DNC fight is still very much up in the air. Um, oh, and one of the reasons. Gosh, Buck, I completely meant to get into this right away. And I jumped right past it. There is a, a, the PAC, the Clinton apparatus is forming. You know, I, I say these things, right? Like the Clinton apparatus and everything. Here's NBC News today. Former aides to Bill and Hillary Clinton are launching a new super PAC to upgrade, upgrade democratic organizing and fundraising in support of the party's candidates around the country. The new group called Party Majority would act as a parallel structure to Democrat Party committees at the national and state levels. The Clinton apparatus is real, everyone. The Clinton deep state within the Democrat Party is real. And now they are trying to uh, restructure and rebrand themselves for, because I don't believe Hillary's going to run again, although people are starting to scare me with that these days. But they are now trying to move and become the kingmaker or the queenmaker, I suppose, of the future. That is what is going on here. This party majority effort. They, uh, the, the, Hillary, uh, the Hillary squad is all getting together and preparing for the future and trying to be the ones that are the, the ones that are at the levers of power for the Democrat Party. That's what this is all about. So the Hillary apparatus is a thing. It is real. And we see that they are taking action right now. And with that, uh, we'll come back, talk some national security. I'll be right back. All right, so a lot going on in the world of national security. We've been talking about it this week. The uh, possibility of open conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, continued uh, threats and provocations from the North Korean leadership. And you got the Trump administration in China right now, President Trump himself trying to get together with Xi Jinping and figure out what the best way forward between our two countries can be on security and a whole bunch of other issues. How's the Trump administration doing thus far? It's an important question, and we've got somebody who can give us some very strong insights into that. Corey Shake is here with us right now. She's a distinguished research fellow at the Hoover Institution, a former NSC and State Department official. She's got a book out, Warriors and Citizens, that she is the co-author of with Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. Uh, Corey, great to have you. It's a great pleasure to be with you. How is, how is Team Trump on the national security side doing so far? How would you, how would you grade it and what needs to get some, some more attention going into 2018? Uh, it's a fantastic question. I think it's hard to give them a single grade because the we can diver- do common. We can do this common yeah. style instead of grade <laughs> the, style. The divergence between different parts of the administration is quite wide. I actually think the lowest grade should go to the president himself uh, because on a lot of subjects like North Korea, I think he's. 
uh, indelicate where delicacy could uh, could be beneficial in his public statements. But the policy that he's carrying out, I actually give good grades to. I, um, I've been surprised at what a terrific job the Trump administration has done in persuading the Central Bank of China not to give loans to Chinese companies operating in North Korea, getting countries to decline to accept North Korean workers, because, of course, one of the main sources of, uh, of foreign currency for the yeah. North, exactly, to the government, not just to the people. Yeah, they don't get to keep it. Yeah, they don't get to keep it. So, so I think the president... Um, his theory of the case of foreign policy is that you can always gain advantage by setting boats rocking. And I actually don't think that's true. I don't think that's true for the rule setter and enforcer of the international world. What did you think of President Trump's, uh, well, he gave a speech. I want to ask you to comment on the whole speech because we could just do the entire segment on that. But he did open the door to a pathway away from conflict for the Kim regime. He, he, he specifically cited that even though, you know, he's, he's talking tough and I'm talking, I'm trying to translate into Trumpese, right? He's talking tough, I'm talking tough. But if he wants to be working more, not, I was going to say, we're not working together, but less hostile, uh, yeah. that door is open. What do you think about that? I think that's terrific because the problem that has prevented the last four American presidents from taking more assertive military action against the growing threat of North Korea's nuclear weapons and its long-range ballistic missile programs is, of course, the 33 million South Koreans in artillery and missile range of North Korea. And so... Engaging in a preventative war to eliminate the threat we are concerned about that provokes immediate damage on our closest allies in the region, I think is not a good option. And so I think the president's uh, playing very ably the opportunities that may have opened by the strong stance he's taken on North Korea for the potential for negotiations. But if I were the North Koreans, I wouldn't believe him, given what he has said when Secretary Tillerson said the same thing. The president said negotiations weren't worth engaging in. So because he's so scattershot, I think it's actually making it very hard both for our friends and for our adversaries to figure out what's happening. And that's not advantageous for the United States. Now, North Korea is certainly getting the bulk of the headlines recently because of the very aggressive missile tests in recent months and the rhetoric between both premiers, ours and, and theirs. Uh, but Afghanistan is a problem that this administration has been handed by the previous administration and the one before that, as you well know. There's supposed to be a new strategy. Uh, I am skeptical that there is a new strategy, having spent some time on previous Afghanistan strategies, it seems to me like this administration is going to try to do a better version of what has been tried in the past. Do you think that that is too pessimistic? Are you in line with that? What do you think about the Afghanistan strategy as it stands now? I think you're exactly right, Buck. Oh, wow. Look at that. I, I really do think that the administration is trying to carry out the same strategy, which is that the United States should have military forces and diplomatic engagement in Afghanistan sufficient to prevent the Afghans from losing the war against the Taliban and other terrorist forces operating in their territory until the Afghans get strong enough to fight this fight on their own. 
what I think neither President Obama nor President Trump have given enough public credit for is that the Afghans have for some years now been bearing the real brunt of this fight, right? That many Afghan military and police units are taking 30% casualties in their engagements. An American military unit hasn't taken that level of casualties since the Korean War, right? Um, And they're holding together. They're meeting their recruiting standards. They're doing great. What I think the Trump administration is trying to do differently than the Obama administration did, and it's really important, but as you say, it's fine-tuning on the existing strategy. They're trying to do two things differently. First, they are li- they are lifting the time limitation that the Trump administration, excuse me, the Obama administration had put on, right? That they are saying our end state should be a function of what we're trying to achieve, not a clock that others can wait us out on. The second change that I think they have made is they are working more creatively with other countries in the region, in particular with India, to try and build the foreign policy interactions that will help strengthen and stabilize the government of Afghanistan. So put a regional context in place, a regional structure in place that won't just be as much on us and the NATO mission there. And I think those are both important improvements on the existing strategy. All right. And uh, we're speaking to Corey Sheik, who's the author of Warriors and Citizens, uh, and also Safe Passage about hegemonic transition. Now, this comes out in just a little bit, Corey. What can you tell us about Safe Passage and hegemonic transition, and what should we know? Thank you so much for asking, Bug. So with all the talk about the rise of China and what does it mean for the United States and can it happen peacefully, I got curious about the subject of hegemonic transitions. And as you probably know, there's only one peaceful one in all of history, only one instance in which a dominant power that was the setter and enforcer of rules in the international order peacefully allowed itself to be supplanted. Our British brothers and sisters to us. Exactly right. And so I got curious about what was it about both one or both of those countries or how the order was changing that made it peaceful. So I've run a history that starts in 1821 and ends in 1945. All right. And you are a fan of the show The Crown on Netflix or not? (laughs) I'm not that interested in the Queen of England. Okay. (laughs) I I saw there's some very lovely set pieces in that, but I was like, I'm I'm falling asleep. Not really my thing. Well, anyway, we have a safe passage coming out in just a little bit. The transition from British to American hegemony and also warriors and citizens, which Corey co-authored with Jim Mattis, currently Secretary of Defense. That book has been doing very well. You should check it out on Amazon. Corey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Beck. All right, everyone, much to discuss in the news today. We've got our buddy Sean Davis on the line. He is the co-founder of The Federalist. Go to thefederalist.com for uh, the latest over there. Great site, excellent writers. And uh, Sean, always appreciate you making some time for us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before we get into some serious stuff, I just need to know, what what is your all-time favorite AR platform modification? Because I think... The Tyrannosaurus Rex bayonet, as in actually attaching a Tyrannosaurus Rex underneath your AR, is, despite what USA Today thinks, probably the best. I got to go with the Sharknado launcher. <laughs> I didn't see that one. I wish I had seen that. You have to send that uh, one. I mean, you, you got to be a part of the really uh, gun Sharknado community to know about that stuff. I have to say, I wasn't sure at first, and I'm just being honest here, I wasn't sure at first that the 
like the zombie X apocalypse uh, chainsaw bayonet was a real thing. It is, in fact, a real thing. It is purchasable. Yeah, well, I don't much sure purchasable is a word, but you can buy it. They things that purport to do that exist. Yes. Um, just as I could, you know, duct tape my dog to an AR and say, you know, it's a uh, it's a it's a doggy AR gun. I mean. It, it yeah, has, it's it's, it's, a, it's clearly a novelty item, right? I mean, this yeah. is like I, I was in a I was in a winter market in New York City recently, and they were selling a uh, a, a very large version of Darth Vader made out of all scrap metal for twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, these bargain. things exist, but it doesn't mean that they're in common usage. Yeah, well, it, the funny thing is, like, so when I first saw that picture going around. Uh, I, I thought it was a joke. I thought people were just like goofing on someone. They're like, oh, let's make a Photoshop of this. It took me like half an hour and I kept on seeing it come up and I thought, wait, wait, no, they, people actually think this is a thing. Um, and you have to be so ignorant of guns. Like, I, I cannot even imagine trying to fire something with like a five to 10 pound attachment on you. That just sounds like absolute misery and agony. And yet a bunch of people thought it was real amazing no absolutely absolutely i mean the, the stuff that's out there you know it's up there with uh i think it was joyce carol oates who was very upset at the photo of steven spielberg where he's posing with the dead triceratops on the set of jurassic park <laughs> i don't know if you've ever seen that that was real oh, yes it's amazing I, I thought that was a hoax but it turns out no she was upset at the dead triceratops on the set of jurassic park and she's like a pulitzer prize winning novelist anyway all right sean tell me about this piece uh on it's on the federalist right now if the supreme court takes this gun control case its decision will be huge and margo cleveland is the author but tell me what's going on here yeah so she she's a, a law professor wrote a really really interesting article looking at a case um, that's coming to the supreme court it's up to the justices to decide whether to take it or not but the the issue we have is that there are a bunch of kind of state level assault weapons bans and none of them have been challenged or have made it all the way to the supreme court in the age of heller so Heller kind of, um, it, it would do what I would characterize as it restored the constitutional uh, uh, originalist version of what the Second Amendment was meant to be. But it was still, a, it, it's a new regime in the 21st century. And so a bunch of people have started suing, saying these state-level assault weapon bans, they go afoul of Heller. And what we've had at the lower court level is a bunch of, Decisions that have said, yes, this is constitutional, but for totally different reasons, different and contradictory reasons. And so this is a really important case because if the Supreme Court takes it, um, it's going to be required to have to both reconcile all these cases and do them in light of Heller. So what it really is is a test of whether this court takes the Heller decision seriously. And if it does, it has to invalidate it. And if it doesn't, then it will find a way to affirm all of them, I, I presume, under some sort of single test or, or, uh, or precedent. Um, but it's going to be a really, really fascinating thing to watch to see whether they take it and if they do, how they rule on it. And doesn't that tell us a lot, though, Sean, that there are courts in the country right now that put limits on the Second Amendment that are that are specific to, uh, you know, assault rifles. And as I've been trying to tell people, I know that I get a lot of angry emails about how don't use the term assault rifle. Well, once 
there are state legislatures that have codified it into law, right? And they've decided that if it fits these characteristics, we call it an assault rifle. So it, it's kind of it's hard to have the discussion without using the terminology because they've now made it a legal term, which is also why I argue we should use the term illegal alien because that's what it says in the federal code and not all the other stuff that's out there. But nonetheless, uh, if they have different rationales for the constitutionality in all these different cases, that alone should cast a lot of suspicion on the constitutionality of this. Right. Like, if it's so, uh, if these bans are so easily and obviously constitutional, it, it shouldn't take a whole bunch of contradictory explanations as to uh, why they're constitutional. Um, and the thing that Heller did that was interesting is it basically said you can't go and ban things that are extremely common and are in common use for home defense. You just can't do that. That runs afoul of the Second Amendment. But what these bans have done is they have banned the most popular rifle in the country, which is the AR-15. Like, you know, regardless of how you feel about it, whether you think it's good or bad or gross or not, um, it's the most popular rifle platform in America. It is used by tens of millions of Americans to, to hunt, to defend themselves, to defend their families. And so now the Supreme Court's going to have to decide, one, is it constitutional even at the state level to ban these? And then two, in the case of this ban in Maryland, whether a, uh, a magazine that can hold more than 10 rounds, uh, whether a ban on that is justified under the Constitution. Help so, me out here, Sean, because uh, I, I know you know the ins and outs of this, but I think this is, this is a very important, very specific question that you, you may not have the answer for just because I don't know if any court has the answer to it. But uh, uh, given that 10-round magazines, as you and I both know, very, very standard, and, and there are plenty of magazines well, no, larger than that. 10 rounds are not standard. 30 rounds are standard. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry. That's what I, given that, sorry. Given that 30 rounds are very standard all over the place, under the... Uh, the current constitutional interpretation after Heller, how can they get, like, what is the argument about it not being in common usage or not being standard? Or do they just ignore that already, uh, altogether? No, no, I think they ignore it altogether. And in fact, a a lot of these cases at the lower court level have used what's called intermediate scrutiny, which is a much lower standard for courts to use when weighing whether a constitutional right can be abridged or uh, prohibited by the federal government. Now, with things like abortion, which never actually appears in the Constitution, judges have to use strict scrutiny. I mean, the, gov- the, the burdens for the government to overcome that, the obstacles, are pretty extreme. And so you have a bunch of these courts saying, no, 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 we're just going to use this lower standard um, to figure out whether we can invalidate, oh, you know, the Second Amendment to the Constitution. So, yeah, they just kind of whistle past the graveyard uh, on common usage upon rarity. And in one case, uh, in one of the court's decisions, they described uh, the AR-15 as being like an M-16, and therefore, since it's like a military weapon, it can be banned like a military weapon. I mean, that's just, it's completely false. It's like saying a NASCAR is just like a Toyota Camry, because it wears the same wrap on it. Right, well, I mean, and in that case, case, somebody's, you know, first, first rifle that's a 22 caliber bolt action... Okay. There's a lot of similarities, as you know, Sean, between a 22 caliber bolt-action rifle and an AR-15. They're both rifles. They fire bullets. They have metal components. I mean, you know, you can play that well, game all day. And the military uses bolt-action rifles. Therefore, bolt-action rifles are military style, and you can ban them. Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the, the constant logic that these gun controllers use has no limiting principle at all. It's basically we, we don't like these, so we think we should be able to ban them. And so, uh, as Margo wrote in her piece, it's going to be really interesting to see whether the Supreme Court is willing to stand by what it wrote in Heller. 
Um, I, I'm not real confident. I, I never have confidence in government when it comes to the preservation of my rights. Um, but it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether they take it and how they rule. Do you think Trump is solid on the Second Amendment or you, you have some concerns? I, uh, I, I, I never assume that anyone's solid on anything, to be honest. It's the that's only way fair, to stay vigilant. That's a fair point of view. I, I should. I think I'm going to put that on. You know, put that up above my desk <laughs> at work. Um, but all right, uh, and, uh, one more thing for you. By the way, check out the piece on thefederalist.com. Sean's a writer and the co-founder there. Uh, but if the Supreme Court takes this gun control case, its decision will be huge. Real quick, Sean, uh, Republicans tax reform. Anything on this? I've been skeptical uh, from the beginning that they're going to get anything done. I think Virginia makes it less likely that Democrats play ball. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I hope they prove me wrong. I like a tax cut. I think most people would, uh, but I'm pessimistic. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. So there you go. All right. Sean Davis, everybody. Sean, great to have you, man. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Our team, we're going to roll into a break here and we'll be back with much more. Stay with me. Okay, team, so we talk on this show a lot about the Second Amendment, about gun policies, the laws around guns, firearm regulations. But what about the decision to become a lawful gun owner yourself? What what about the decision to conceal carry? What kind of firearm should you think about having in your home? All these other parts of the discussion that I think don't get nearly as much attention. There's a piece recently on The Federalist, uh, written by Sergeant Major Kyle Lamb. If you choose to carry a gun for self-defense, he writes, proper training is essential. We wanted to bring uh, Sergeant Lamb on the phone here uh, to talk to us about his piece and, and to walk us through this process of if you choose to carry, what kind of training and what sort of questions should you be asking yourself? Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's awesome. Uh, so tell me about this, man. I mean, if someone's out there thinking, you know what, I, I would just like to carry for self-defense. Take me through what, you know, if, if, if a buddy of yours was sitting down, but not, let's assume it's not a lot of people listening to the show are like marksmen and, you know, very skilled with firearms. But let's assume it's somebody who would be new to firearms ownership, but has decided, you know what, I want to exercise my Second Amendment rights. Walk, you know, how would you explain that process and, and walk them step by step through that? Well, the first thing that I would do is I would not go out and buy a gun immediately. I would try to use other people's firearms because it's a lot cheaper to test theirs out and see if it works for you before you go out and actually buy your own. If you have the capability to do that, if you're in a hurry, then by all means, go out and you know buy from a reputable manufacturer there. But then I'm going to get the training. So I'm either going to, you know, I'm going to start reading about it. I'm going to start watching some YouTube videos. And when I get to the point where I think, okay, I'm ready to try this out. I would like to go with somebody to the range that actually knows what they're doing, and I would try to go to a range someplace where it's safe. I mean, you may have a a pile of dirt in your backyard and you live in Tennessee or Texas. By all means, go for it. But have somebody there that can help you to, to, to safely load the weapon, fire the weapon for the first time, get comfortable with that, walk you through the safety rules to make sure that you understand what those are, And hopefully after that point, I mean, really, the bottom line is this. If you go to the range and you shoot a gun and you don't enjoy it, you probably don't have a soul, right? I mean, that's what I would that's what I would say. Um, I'd get the guy out on the range or the gal on the range, let him shoot a little bit. And at that point, they should be hooked. Now, let's try to convince them to go get more training. I mean, obviously, if you're a former military guy, you may have that training. You may not. You may be somebody that grew up in the backwoods like I did. I had that training before I ever joined the military, but I still feel like I can always 
get trained to a higher degree. And there's so many places you can go. Like I said, yeah. I mean, Kyle, Kyle I just online. before you before you get, I was going to say to everybody. I mean, you spent you were 21 years in the Army, and most of them in Army Special Operations. So you're very comfortable with firearms. But for somebody out there, let's say who's at that you know advanced beginner stage, let's say, or maybe you know intermediate. I'm trying to think of sports terminology for how they try to group people, right? right. For, but for somebody who you know understands, okay, firearm safety, right? Step one, firearm safety, about knowing your target, finger off the trigger, you know, understanding the basics of ballistics and, you know, don't don't point your gun at anybody ever, all that. Once you get that down and you have that comfort to go to a range, the next steps, where would you suggest people go? Well, your local, if you can find trainers at your local range, they're always there. You know, for example, Nashville, Tennessee, we've got Royal Range. They've got guys that you can go in there and say, hey, I want to protect my family and I've had a little bit of training. What can you do for me? And they're going to have structured classes that are going to get you that to that level and the better thing about that is not only are they going to have classes that are going to help you to get to that level but you're going to meet other people that are in the same at the same point in their career of shooting as you are and you know it's 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 just so much fun to get on the range with these people have a little competition you know realistic scenarios but still have it be a competition i've heard people say well you don't want to use a timer you don't want to have competition when you're talking about tactics well, last time I checked, the fastest guy wins. So we do have to push ourselves, which induces that stress. And if you're ever in a real shooting, you will have stress. We're going to do that before we get in that fight, not during the fight or after the fight. We want to be prepared before any of this happens. Because if you have to make that decision to pull a gun on somebody, it's a huge decision. You should never take that lightly. So we want to make sure that person is trained, not just for their firearm, but the laws of your state. You know, your your state laws in Tennessee and New York are very important to know them because the laws are very different state to state, as you know. No, I mean, if you go to New York, you better just, uh, I don't know, I guess run and hide because you really are not not allowed to defend yourself. Um, But if you live inside of America, (laughs) you can uh, you can go to great states like Texas or Tennessee or some of these states where, you know, the 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 bad guy doesn't have more rights than the good guy when it comes to defending yourself castle doctrine which in tennessee even applies to your vehicle castle doctrine meaning that if you're in your vehicle you have the right to defend yourself as though you were in your home and one thing i want to ask you we're speaking to sergeant major kyle lamb retired from the united states army 21 years most of it with uh, army special operations for those who are thinking about because we're really talking about the basics of getting comfortable with uh, firearms with firearms ownership and and being able to you know, know, know your way around guns a bit. What about those who are thinking about concealed carry on a regular basis? What should they be thinking about and considering? Well, the, the very first thing is if you're going to carry a gun, you need to carry a gun. A lot of folks say, well, yeah, I've got a gun. Well, where's that? Well, it's in my car. Okay, well, you're in a business that it's legal to carry in and you don't have your gun. You're, you're just not doing yourself any favors there. You've got to have a means to carry that is somewhat comfortable and very concealable. Now, some folks believe in, you know, open carry, and that's fine. That's good. That's their right to believe in that. I want to have my my weapon concealed. So I carry an appendix rig a lot, which a lot of folks don't like that, but it's a very good way to protect the gun. If you don't know what that is, go out, talk to your local, you know, firearms dealers there, and they'll be able to show you what what we're talking about. Um, I like that because I can move it around when I'm in the vehicle. When I get in a vehicle, I can move it from appendix back to over my uh, over my hip. Um, the other thing that I carry quite often is an ankle rig because there's a lot of times I'm going to places where I have to be 
somewhat more presentable. I've got to tuck my shirt in. Well, when I do that, it's a hard, it's a little bit harder to conceal a weapon. Now, if you're a female or a dude that likes to carry a purse, <laughs> I guess that can happen too. Yeah, I was going to ask, what about, what about the fanny pack option? I've, I've seen people draw really fast out of the fanny pack. Yeah, I think the fanny pack is awesome. It's just, it depends on, you know. Well, it's a fanny pack, yeah. If I see a guy with a fanny pack, I immediately know the guy's got a gun. So if he's looking sketchy, I'm already checking that person out. I would say that the fanny pack is a very, very good option. Um, I like appendix because I can protect it, and you'll never know. Even if I've got running shorts on, you won't even know that I've got a gun there. So I think it's, it's you got to find the right thing that works for you. Everybody's body's different, so find what actually works for you. And then when you pick that firearm, make sure it's a, a firearm that's actually shootable. A lot of men especially want to buy their wives revolvers. They go, oh, she's a woman. She needs a revolver. The revolver's the hardest gun to shoot, and they give that to their wife, who probably has smaller hands, going to have a hard time shooting it. Get her a firearm that she can actually hang on to. Once again, find those folks out there that have firearms that you can say, hey, can I try that out? Let me try out your Smith & Wesson or your Glock or your SIG. And, okay, will that work? What's, you know, what model do I want? What caliber is it in? Can I handle a recoil of a 40 versus a 9mm? There's so many different questions, and the best way to do that is go to the range with somebody else that's knowledgeable that can say, hey, try this gun, hey, try that gun, and then go from there. Kyle, one more for you before we let you go. And everyone should check out Kyle's piece. If you choose to carry a gun for self-defense, proper training is essential. It's up on thefederalist.com, uh, where our friends Sean Davis and Ben Dominich and others uh, are writers and editors. Um, I'm, I'm going to put you on the hot seat for a second, Kyle. You only – just give me the best answer you can. You can only have one firearm for home defense the rest of your life. What is it? Right now, I would say it's going to be a SIG 320, a P320. And I'm going to have a light mounted on it. I'm going to have it in a holster on a belt that I can quickly grab and put on so that I don't have to, you know, if I've got to carry somebody or uh, treat somebody with first aid or I've got to climb over a wall or whatever, I'm going to already have that set up ready to go. And it's going to be a nine millimeter. I'm going to have 21 round magazines in that weapon that are factory magazines. They're not aftermarket. And that's what I'm going to be carrying. All right. Sergeant Major Kyle Lamb, thank you so much for your service, sir, and your expertise on the show today. Please come back sometime. All right. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. All right, team, we are going to roll into a a break here. We come back, we're going to talk uh, with Tyrone a bit about some sports uh, stories that are getting a lot of attention right now, including the latest with the NFL. And and then we'll get into some Team Buck Speaks, uh, where I get to read notes from all of you, which is really fun. So we'll get into that in a few. Stay with me. Okay, everybody. Uh, He was out for a few days on vacation. We are excited that he is back, not just making sure that the show runs smoothly and that our creative and analytic directions are on point, uh, but also because he brings a particular expertise into the Freedom Hunt. Our friend Tyrone is with us now. Let's step into the Tyrone zone and talk about the latest with the NFL, sports, politics, everything else going on. Ty, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. So, uh, first of all, I saw it was a prominent sports announcer, uh, I believe, who was saying that the future of the NFL is bleak because it destroys brains. That, that seems like pretty bold stuff. It's bold, but there's no evidence that says otherwise. And that's the fundamental issue with the NFL. And I know we've talked about, you know, anthem protest in mass on the show, and so is everyone else. And it's turned a lot of people off. But I believe that the number one reason why people turned the games off is because of this fear with CTE. If your kid's not playing the fo- playing football and he's playing other sports, I think you're more likely to watch other sports. 
I think part of the reason why some people watch sports is because their kids are involved in them, and youth participation in football is way down because parents don't think it's safe. You wouldn't let your kid play, would you? I wouldn't let my kid play football. I mean, when I say wouldn't let, I mean, if, if he was, like, kicking and screaming about it, maybe I would relent a little bit in the early days, but I, I would be worried about it. Absolutely not. They, and, there's, and the problem is there's no way to take contact, head contact, out of the game, no matter how safe you play, quote-unquote. And it's an issue. that, And even if they fix the anthem thing and all that other stuff, you can't fix that part. And I think, unlike the other sports, you – there's safeguards you can't safeguard at football. They're in a lot of trouble. Now, what happened with the with the kneeling as of this week? Where are we on all that? Really, now it's down to these owners. I, I, we've stressed on this show before, and we've talked about how the players and the owners have a very poor relationship. And now, basically, it's like if the president, with his sob comment, and the owners don't talk, maybe three people kneel. But when someone does talk, then the numbers spike up. So as long as everybody's quiet this week, I expect you'll have a half a dozen players across the whole league deal, and that'll be that, and then it'll go down. But it seems like every week when we think it's over, someone else says something, and no one said anything yet this week outside of uh, Papa John's uh, CEO saying that they should have nipped this in the bud, blah, blah, blah. It's the reason people are buying my pizza. Nobody took that too seriously. So I think you'll be down to about six this week because no one's put their foot in their mouth. Yeah, it would seem a little extreme if you got NFL players kneeling because some guy who owns a chain of, of pizzerias that I will not comment on the quality of the pizza, of the pizza but I will say that uh, you know I cannot eat gluten. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, but that would seem to be a bit, a bit extreme to me. You know, this, this, if that guy can trigger people kneeling, then anybody can. Yeah, there'll be very few kneelers this week. And uh, I think by the end of the season, this will go away if people stop talking about it. When I say people, I mean people within the league and prominent public figures. Is this the worst year in a long time, and to, to your mind, and, and in, your, in your analysis, the worst year the NFL's had in, what, 10 years? Was that fair to say? It is, and quickly, the, the reason is because they got away with so many things in the past. And... Another point I want to bring up is Jerry Jones is threatening to possibly sue the NFL because of this whole, uh, you know, if Roger, if Roger Goodell, the commissioner, gets a new contract, he's threatening to sue the league because he doesn't want Roger Goodell. So now you have the owners fighting amongst the commissioner because the commissioner only works for the owners. He actually doesn't work for the players. Here's the problem. Once they got away with the Ray Rice situation, they thought they were bulletproof from everything. And Goodell got him through that, and that's why he gets paid over $30 million a year. And they finally found out that there's a limit on power, which everyone should know. But I think the NFL as a collective got a little bit cocky. And I think that's why they have no ability to deal with crisis because crisis never hurt their bottom line until this year. Uh, Hubris can bring down any person, any organization. I also think, by the way, it's the underlying theme of of what happens uh, in Game of Thrones to people is, is hubris is their downfall, but that's a separate note. Uh, to Tyrone, also one more thing I wanted to ask you. We only got about a minute here, but uh, the uh, there, there were some players, basketball players, that were in China. There's some trouble there. I didn't really read much about it, but I know you're up on it. Yes, yeah, some three players. I, uh, the most famous one being Leangelo Ball. He's uh, LeVar Ball's brother and uh, son, and Lonzo Ball, who plays for the Lakers' little brother of the three ball families with the triple B and all that stuff. You can Google that at your own time. They allegedly 
shoplifted while they're on a China tour. And now they're out on bail and there's some talk that they have to stay in China for a month to go on trial. There's some say they could face years in prison. The president being in China right now makes it only adds to the intrigue a little bit. This is a these are a group of college kids who did something stupid, but they did something stupid in the wrong place to do something stupid. Yeah, I wouldn't mess around with anything in China, right? I mean, I, I didn't even I wouldn't even say anything bad about Chinese food in China, right? Like, you, you just got to be very careful with that government that you don't you don't upset. Uh, it doesn't matter that you're a visitor; you can get in a lot of trouble. Uh, but to tie one more, are you, you going to watch the NFL this weekend? I am because um, I I will watch some off and on, but I to be honest with you, it's hard for me to get involved in it the way I used to. But that has more to do personally with the CTE repercussions than the anthem protest. All right, Tyrone, great to have you back, man, and thank you for your analysis. Team, we'll have some Team Buck Speaks coming up on the flip side. Stay with me. Well, team, this is going to be my last Stanford University-based broadcast uh, for a little while, at least. It's been uh, quite a a week out here. Very much enjoyed my time. Very thankful to the uh, Hoover Institution for hosting me as a media fellow. Uh, They've got so many brilliant scholars. One of my favorite things since I've been here, uh, besides getting to chat with and meet a lot of uh, Hoover's uh, top-tier writers and and analysts, is uh, that they have all these different rooms that are just full of books. And they're like, hey, do you want to just go take a bunch of books on Mideast Foreign Policy written by our our super brilliant scholars? And I was like, yes, please. And then they're like, we can even send them to your home or your studio in New York for you so you don't have to worry about carrying them in the airport. And I was like, yes, please. It was very exciting for me. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Very much uh, enjoyed my time out here, and I got a whole bunch of great books out of it as well. So uh, this is where I want to get into some Team Buck Speaks. Oh, but before I do that, I should note that I will be speaking at the Freedom Summit in Chicago this weekend. It's uh, just just outside of the city of Chicago, and uh, it is it's called the Freedom Summit. Um, it's being put on by uh, WIND, a radio station out there, and uh, you can come hear me live if you want. I, I don't know. I think tickets... Might be sold out, but I'm, you know, I mean, I'm just saying if you're Team Buck and you show up and you're like, I really love listening to Buck speak in person because I've never done it before. So maybe you'll love it. Maybe you won't. Uh, then then you can. I'm sure we can figure something out. For those of you listening. Um, but, yeah, I'll be in Chicago. Really my first time I'm going to be spending. Well, I've been to the airport in Chicago a few times and, and it's environs. I'm going to have to go to downtown Chicago. I'm just going to have to do it because I haven't been before. All right. So with that. Now, I will say it is time for some Team Buck Speaks. Here we go. Uh, TJ writes in, in regards to what should be done on college campuses to promote conservatism, it's a lost cause until we can prove through our federal government that conservatism actually works. I have yet to see it myself. I'm only 27, but I believe it to be true. However, most people are naturally seers uh, more than believers, and in the millennial's lifetime, there has not yet been enough proof Uh, In our politically influential years of life, that conservatism in the federal level works. Most will need to see it work before they believe it works. Well, TJ, I I think you make some very good points here. I would give you as a a counterpoint or another another way of thinking about this, that right now the federal government is larger than it has ever been. Right now, there are more regulations that the government 
inflicts upon all of us than at any time in our history. There are more criminal laws and statutes than at any time in our history. The various government agencies taken together are the largest that they have been, certainly outside of uh, a time of war, in our history, right? So, you know, you look at this and we are, in many ways, those who are truly constitutional conservatives are on defense in a big way. And even when we have victories, even when there's things, uh, there are things that are happening at the electoral level that look like they're positive for conservatism, we don't necessarily uh, get to march the ball downfield. It seems that conservatism is, from a cultural perspective, certainly on defense most of the time. And from a government perspective, uh, the, the federal monster has grown so large that to even speak about limited government is, is almost a, uh, an act of, of faith. The government has gotten so big that when you talk about a limited government, it's almost like trying to discuss an alternate universe. Now, you have to talk about a limited government if you're going to shrink the enormous federal leviathan. But we are a long way away from actually having limited government conservatism in in recent years, in recent decades. Uh, and, and it has been trending in the wrong direction. There have been some moments, there have been some... Uh, Periods of momentum for conservatism, most notably you know, the Reagan Revolution. And, but if you look starting in, from 2000, let's just say, until today, government has just gotten more in debt. It has gotten larger. It has gotten more intrusive. And it has, in many ways, exceeded, in, in count, countless ways, exceeded its constitutional mandate. So that's what I would say on that, TJ. Um, and I appreciate very much you writing in. Uh, then we have... Um, you have Paul writing, and you mention uh, book reviews a lot of times about combat ex- combat veterans and their experiences. Any chance I could get a list of that somehow? And that is from Paul. Uh, well, Paul, I, just off the top of my head, people that are that are either friends of mine, friends of the show, or we've had on as guests who all have excellent books uh, would would include the. And this is off the top of my head, so I apologize if I'm leaving out somebody who's fantastic. Apologies. Uh, but clearly, you, you could pick up my friend Sean Parnell's Outlaw Platoon. It's a great book. Uh, you, could also, um, you could also read Brandon Webb's uh, The Red Circle. You could read uh, the Chris Kyle autobiography, American Sniper, if you have not. I, I didn't know Chris, and I never met him, and I'm just thinking now of great, of great books. Um, that would certainly be on the list. Uh, there's The Reaper, which is the autobiography of one of the deadliest special ops snipers. That's from Nick Irving. I've had him on the show before, and, uh, and he's, he's got a fascinating story. So The Reaper, American Sniper, The Red Circle, Outlaw Platoon. I haven't read House to House. I've heard very good things about it. Um, I also would put in this category of excellent—I mean, uh, there's so many now, and I feel bad because I'm—, I'm obviously leaving out some great ones that just aren't uh, jumping to mind. Um, but anyway, th- th- those, that, that should keep you busy for a little while. I've, I've given you a few, and I think that would be, uh, that would be a pretty good start for you to uh, get, get going. Oh, uh, yeah, House to House is uh, David uh, Bellavia, so you could check. I haven't read that one, but I've, I've heard good things about that. And there are, there are a 
tremendous. There's lots of fantastic books out there that are really gripping, really powerful, and and important about our veterans in Iraq and Afghanistan. That that I you know. So I named a bunch, and I, I hope that that uh, is helpful. Oh, and also a friend um, uh, that was just on the show and his book, and I'm forgetting we just had him on, and I was. Very excited about it. And now I'm a bounty hunter four three. My life in combat from Marine Scout Sniper to Marsock by Jason Delgado. There we go. So Bounty Hunter 4-3, The Red Circle, American Sniper, House to House, and The Reaper. Uh, I think I think I've got you. And Outlaw Platoon. There, there you go. There's a list of combat veteran books that is that are all going to be very much worth your time. Oh, and we had uh, Jocko on the other day, too. I don't know what jo- Jocko has done a lot of leadership books. I forget what his memoir uh, book is called. But, you know, any just type in J-O-C-O, you know, Navy SEAL, and you'll get a whole bunch of really good books. Gosh, I feel like I should be in the book publishing business. I'm just, mo- I'm just moving books left and right here. All right. Um, let's get back into what I am trying to do here, which is Team Buck Speaks. Sorry about uh, sorry about that. Um, Oh, yeah, people send me, I should just note, I love it when people send me uh, their photos of, you know, I, I had someone send me when I talked about cannons on the show, their homemade cannon. I read that. That was amazing. And now I've had a few people send me. Now, I don't know if they're, if they're owned by them, because I can't really tell from the photo, or, or if they're just sharing with me the uh, chainsaw bayonet. But this is so funny. I mean, as soon as I mentioned on air, I was like, oh, oh, Buck, I'll show you a chainsaw bayonet. So if any of you own a chainsaw bayonet, I want to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I want to see the photo of you rocking the chainsaw bayonet. Uh, Cheryl writes in with the following. Hey, Buck, faithful podcast listener. Love the show and the analysis. Love the deep dives. I've learned so much over the years and have almost all your books that you have recommended and have, and have enjoyed them immensely. Wish I could listen live. Suggestion. Would love to hear a segment with Kami Bear, David Gergen, and last but not least, Hillary, having the discussion about what happened. Oh my, that would be killer. Uh, I thought you should know, but what do you think? Shield time, my brother. And this is from Joel, uh, who is, must be using his, his wife's account, uh, who's Cheryl. Uh, so, that's a great idea. It'd be really fun. You know, Kami Bear uh, likes the Gurgen because the thing about uh, Gurgen is it always sounds like he's had a fifth of vodka for, like, breakfast and maybe lunch and uh, maybe dinner, too. Uh, so... I don't even drink. Well, what happened, David? I mean, I could do the whole thing now, right? This is going to be a whole. This is going to be a whole separate, a whole separate segment, maybe a whole separate show. Today in politics with Hillary Clinton. Let's talk about you know gurgling, gurgling with gurgling's a real segment. Yeah, it's like uh, you know you should probably uh, not have the worst woman on the planet and the uh, the drunkest worst political analyst in the universe. Oh, he's not even drunk. This is. Let Kami Bear do all the talking. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that we can go with this. But I love you. I love the idea, Cheryl. Thank you for writing in. Thank you for your thoughts. Uh, we have also um, Kirk writing in. Uh, thanks so much for. Uh, thanks so much. Wow. Regarding the Texas shooting, I totally agree with your comment around who we are as a people and as a country. Most of the country, as evidenced by the election, are God-fearing people who would do the same thing Stephen Wilford did, given the same situation. 
As a Houston resident who went through Hurricane Harvey, I am surrounded by heroes that selflessly went to work to help their brothers in need no matter the risk. No matter how the media wants to paint every tragedy, good always triumphs over evil. And you are correct. The Holy Spirit was working through Stephen and all the heroes during Hurricane Harvey. And that is from Kirk down in Texas. Well, Kirk, thank you for your uh, fantastic message. And shields high to you, my friend. All right. With that, I am going to uh, close up shop from Northern California here in the Freedom Hut. Like I said, thanks to the uh, Hoover Institute for having me here. Really appreciate their hospitality and all the time I've been able to spend with their research fellows and scholars, uh, and also Stanford University for putting me up for a few days. You know, bring bring me back to the old Amherst days. Next time, maybe I'll have to do some kind of a conservative rally on campus. Oh my gosh, it's a microaggression! But uh, in the meantime, I should just say thank you to my very pleasant hosts at Stanford University for uh, letting me come and do the show here. And uh, big thanks to the Hoover Institute for uh, putting this whole thing together. So I'm going to be out tomorrow. Uh, you're going to have Brian Suits uh, guest hosting the Buck Sexton Show. But I will be back with you on Monday and every day next week. As always, I would recommend, I would implore, I would ask that no matter what comes your way, shields high.